go to Luke chapter 10, very popular story in the Word of God. We call it the Good Samaritan. So the title of the lesson is The Samaritan's Purse. We're going to examine this closely. And because we are going to look at so many verses, I'm only going to read verses 25 through 28. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How do you read? And He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. He said unto him, Thou hast answered rightly this do, and thou shalt live. Okay, so rather than just praying, let's sing this prayer. Some of you may know, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Come on, let's sing. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. So the Samaritan's Purse, that's what we're looking at for this lesson. We'll notice in verse 25 where it begins, said there was a certain lawyer stood up amongst all the people. Now a lawyer in this context is not what we think of as a lawyer. We think of someone who's pleading a case in a courtroom scene. But in the Old Testament, the law was considered to be Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in some contexts, they considered the law to be Genesis through Malachi. And so the people who made it their business to study the laws of Moses and the teachings of the Old Testament developed these various occupations. So it wasn't until after the children of Israel went into captivity and then emerged from captivity, that we ended up with a synagogue system, with Pharisees, with Sadducees, and with scribes and lawyers, particularly lawyers. They always had people that copied the scriptures, but a Jewish lawyer was a person who was so well-versed in the law that they would intervene when there were family squabbles, religious problems, and they would say, here is what the law said. Because in the Old Testament, you'll remember, they had judges, and sometimes the laws dealt with property, sometimes the laws dealt with uh, different aspects of the penal code. If somebody committed a sin against another family or committed murder, you had to have someone who could at least be able to explain it. This is the kind of occupation this gentleman had. 
Now, he wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to tempt him and try to entrap him with a certain kind of language. And you notice in verse 25, he starts off by calling him master or teacher. He wants to sound reverent. He wants to be respectful somewhat. But I love the question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Obviously, that was on his heart. That was on his mind. It might have been in uh, the conversations of certain people, but I love the reply of the Lord. He said, what is written in the law and how do you read it? That's one of the earliest opportunities where you can see where Jesus asked somebody, what do you think the scriptures mean? I'll be honest, those are the hardest Bible studies to lead. If You've got a table with nine people there. Then everybody reads a scripture, and then you say, what does that verse mean to you? You get some of the oddest interpretation. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying to this man. You're an expert in the law. I'm asking you now about your expertise. How do you interpret the law with respect to the question you just put to me? And so he cites Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and also Leviticus 19, verse 18. And he puts the two together. He says, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then the Leviticus part, and your neighbor as yourself. So he says, everything that you have within you, I believe that you ought to just give it to God and love God. How do you love him with your mind? Think the thoughts of God. Meditate on the scriptures. How do you love him with your heart? Keep your heart filled with faith in God. How do you love him with your strength? Employ your energies in the kingdom of God, doing things that glorify God. So don't busy yourself with an occupation in which you cannot give God glory. That is to say, Jesus can't be magnified in it because it's sinful. So in this context, then, with that statement, he continues by talking about loving your neighbor. Now, how in the world do you do that? Most of us tend to love ourselves above our neighbor, and we live our lives like that. And I know that's the case because typically if you go out and buy a vehicle, you buy one for yourself. You don't usually buy one for your neighbor. And when you go grocery shopping, most of you buy groceries each week for yourselves. You don't, we don't buy them for our neighbors. And when we go clothing shopping, we're typically buying them for ourselves and not for our neighbors. So he has to be talking about something else here. And what, and what the scripture is implying, though, is that in your conduct and in your behavior with your neighbor, to practice love is to show no particular favoritism towards them, but to treat them as you would want people to treat you. That's what he's saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's smart enough to know these two scriptures, and he's wise enough to use these scriptures in speaking to Jesus But notice what the Lord says in verse 28. You've answered rightly. Now, this word right in the Greek is the word orthos, which is where we get the word orthodox from. So he gave a correct answer. But it's obvious, though, that even though he has the correct answer, he hasn't experienced it. Because Jesus says to him further, this do and thou shalt live. Remember his question at the end of verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says in verse 28, do these verses and you shall live. So what's the opposite? If you don't do these verses, you won't live. 
So now you have an explicit statement from the Lord regarding who he believes would enter the kingdom of heaven and who wouldn't enter the kingdom of heaven. This is before Calvary. This is before the cross. So in verse 28, this man, he hears Jesus say, you've answered correctly. So I see with the lawyer the possibility that a person can be accurate and make a statement that's true to fact, but yet have no understanding of what they're saying. Yeah. Eternal life was in these verses. Verse 27. Eternal life. And according to Jesus, if they did these verses, they would live forever. Now, every synagogue had a scroll that said these words. Most Jewish homes, particularly the rabbis, would have had ancient scrolls or inscriptions that said these things. According to ancient Jewish custom, this Deuteronomy 6 and 5 verse was a verse to be recited frequently throughout the week. They just say it over and over to themselves. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. But yet here's a man that had eternal life right here within these verses, and he never knew that eternal life was in these verses. He never knew the application of these verses to his life would produce eternal life. If he did, he never would have asked the question. So what am I saying? I'm saying from this, you can see that it's possible to have within arm's reach the Bible that contains eternal life and still not even know it's there. How many people do you know that have Bibles on their shelves and don't read it? So they have a Bible, then they have a Hindu book, then they have a Buddha book, then they have this book, some other book, all kinds of novels and have the Bible right up next to it. And their life is empty. Their life is sad. Their life is pained. But right there, just a few feet away, if they pull the book off the shelf, read the book and then apply it, there's eternal life. There's a lot of people don't even realize that. That's exactly what this lawyer is experiencing here. But he gives the right answer. So again, can give the right answer even though you haven't experienced it. Do you realize you can teach a toddler to say Jesus is Lord and he died on the cross for your sins and yet if you can ask that child who died for your sins they'll say Jesus and that child still won't have any idea on this earth what redemption from sin means. But they'll learn how to parrot it and that's what happened here. The way you determine what somebody understands is just by asking further questions. And when Jesus heard this man say, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus asked two more questions. Well, what's in the law and how do you read it? Most of us, if we ask a question, we don't want somebody to respond with a question. We want somebody to respond with an answer. If you ask me a question about the Bible and then I answer with the question, that's not going to please you. But that's exactly what happened right here. We tend to discover what we believe when we move into other areas where we actually have to apply it and explain what we believe. Yeah. You, you put a you put a two or three year old in a crib and you walk out of the room and you say, you stay in there. And you come back, it's likely that child's still going to be there. You put a seven or eight-year-old in a crib 
And, and depending on the kid's temperament, you know, when you walk out and come back, that kid's not going to be in that crib. But some seven or eight year olds, because they're obedient, they'll be sitting right there and won't move. Won't move. And, and a person who has faith in God, has a relationship with God, you'll know it when they get outside the crib. It's the same thing with kids. What someone believes you will discover when they get out on their own, when they get married, when they have to apply these things. Because you know as well as I do, uh, kids, you know, with, with mom and dad around, they don't have a choice but to do right in some regard because there's supervision then there's peer pressure. We don't want our siblings to see us doing what we shouldn't be doing. But I'm telling you, once they graduate and move out on their own or they get married, you're going to find out whether or not they really believe in God or not because you're going to watch the choices and the decisions that they make. Yeah. I've seen it with public school kids. I've seen it with homeschool kids. People can, they, everybody knows how to parrot the right words as long as they have the crib around them. But you put them in a situation where now they can make their own individual choices. No one's looking over their shoulder. Then sometimes they have questions. Yeah. Okay. So Jesus told this man, if you do these things, you'll live. But he wasn't satisfied. So he wanting to justify himself. So he wanted to seem like he was righteous. He asked another question then. Okay. Who is my neighbor? Now, he's the one that cited the scripture, quoted Leviticus 19. So his follow-up then is to say to the Lord, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus could have told him, but Jesus tells him a story. And that's the one thing I like about Jesus. He liked parables. He liked stories. Now, we, we don't tend to like that. If you ask Grandpa a question and every time you ask grandpa a question, then grandpa puts the answer in a story and it's a long story. Then everybody's not happy about that. Yeah. <clears throat> so you, you have some idea what I'm talking about. I had a grandmother that was that way. I say, grandma, did you ever have to experience this or did this ever happen? Sit down here, child. Let me tell you all about it. See, 30 minutes later, we're still working on that one question. So Jesus doesn't give a direct answer, but he puts the answer on a road that descends from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, why is it called down? Because if you're looking on a map, it looks like you're going north. But the way Jerusalem is built, it's a mountain where the temple and everything is. And with it being a mountaintop in any direction from that hilltop, if you go down the hill, you're descending. Whether you're going north, south, east, or west. So this is why he's going down from the holy city to a place called Jericho. And the scripture says he fell amongst thieves. So there were some people there by a particular area who were waiting for someone that they could rob. And according to verse 30 here, it was pretty bad. They took all of his clothing off him, wounded him. And left him half dead. I'm going to assume uh, most of us in here have never been robbed. Because you don't exactly have a whole lot of robbery out here in the small towns. But for the handful of us that have been in the big city who have been robbed. It's not a pleasant circumstance at all. Because it's always unexpected 
And when it happens, it's usually frightening. Because the people who are robbing you, they don't normally just rob you with their hands. They, they, they've got weapons. And the whole point of the weapons is to use those as a force or means of intimidation. Because fear is a paralyzing thing. And when you're afraid, you don't want to move. Yeah. So this man came down and he fell amongst thieves. There was more than one. They were plural. And his life was in jeopardy. Now there are, I'm trying to think of a time where I know I was getting off a plane one time in Egypt and I had these bags. I had too many suitcases to carry. And so they always had these little kids that come up to you and ask you if you need some help. So I needed some help. And of course, I'm going to get ready to tip them. So why, while I'm getting my wallet out so I can tip them, then the kids took off running in different directions with my suitcases. But fortunately for me, the suitcases were heavy enough they couldn't move that fast. So I caught up with them and I wounded them because I wanted all my belongings back. There's no way on this earth I was going to let them uh, have all of that. But, but I've also been in circumstances where I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and was robbed and the wallet was taken. Sometimes nice clothing is taken. This is what happened to him. They would not have taken his raiment if his clothing wasn't nice. Now, there, there are some thieves, I'm sure, that, you know, they stop some people and have pity on them just because they don't look like they need to be robbed. Yeah. But here it says they beat this man and harmed him, and then they left him. Now, you know, if you leave somebody half dead, you pretty much left them unconscious, and it's pretty bad. It's, it's pretty bad. And all over this earth, we find robbery and thievery. And then verse 31 says, By chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Now, let's, let's remember, we're talking to a lawyer. We're talking to a man who's an expert in the law. And the first character that Jesus is going to introduce who's going to see the man that's been harmed is this, uh, this priest whose role was to offer sacrifices in the temple. One of the most important jobs in serving God, to be able to offer sacrifices. But it says, he saw him and he passed by. Now, How many times have any of us done that? Saw somebody in trouble and passed by. I was telling some folks here not too long ago, there, there was a time when if you saw somebody walking down a dirt road and you were driving a truck, you could stop, you know, and go ahead and pull up, just say jump in, carry them down the highway or down the dirt road, wherever they're going. But you don't see a whole lot of that today because people don't know each other. Yeah. A few miles from Red Cloud, they just had a situation a couple of months ago where somebody pickup truck pulled into a little bank in a small town, robbed the bank, and then abandoned the pickup several miles away, had a car somewhere, and picked up all the folks, and the folks just kind of disappeared, and they still hadn't caught up with them to figure out who it was. So everybody today doesn't stop when they see someone who's laying along the road. And of course, if this person is half dead, 
Most people would never know it because we don't get close enough to see him anyhow. But in this instance, the scripture says when he saw him, he passed on the opposite side. His behavior, his conduct, his motions were intentional. I see him, he's in trouble. But I'm not even going to take the time to stop. That's exactly what, what he did. And we, we, we certainly have to learn the lesson from this. This priest being a very religious man, we can come up with every excuse we can think of why he didn't stop. We can say, well, the law said you shouldn't go near somebody dead. You defile yourself. Then you've got to go through the whole ritual of cleansing. He didn't want to do that. That might have been it. Or we can say he was on his way somewhere and he didn't want to stop and take the time because he needed to be where he had to go. Whatever the issue is, the whole point of Jesus telling the story is to show there were people who were negligent in their behavior towards someone that was hurt. That's the thing. So after the priest, verse 32, here comes the Levite. When he was at the place, he came and looked on him and passed on the other side. So if the first one wasn't bad enough, then think of the Levite. What's a Levite? A Levite is one of the ones who helped maintain the temple. They helped to carry and rebuild and refurbish the items of the temple that were used by the priest. So the priest is walking down the road. He sees a man. He says, oh, my, that, that looks bad. And he just keeps rolling. And then the Levite comes along and he walks over this. Oh, goodness, you look like you're in trouble. And then he walks on the other side trying to avoid him as best as he could. Two of the most religious people on planet Earth with no care, no compassion, no concern for somebody who's half dead and incapable of taking care of himself because of all of his wounds, his wounds. He's been hurt that bad that he he can't even get up on his own. Now, you know, if he could have, he'd have got up off that, that, that road and he'd have went home on his own. But he couldn't. So look at verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Now, what is it about this story that makes the Samaritan important to it? Well, the Samaritans in the Old Testament were part of a region of Israel that was repopulated with foreigners and the people there intermarried. The Samaritans thought the Jewish people, because of their intermixture of marriage, that they weren't fit to be the covenant people of God. And through time, the Samaritans came to believe that only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were the Bible. They rejected all the other Old Testament books. They said, absolutely not. Isaiah, not part of the canon. Psalms, not part of the canon. Nehemiah, not part of the canon. So there was friction between the Jews and the Samaritans because the Jews believed in Jerusalem you're supposed to worship on that holy mount, and the Samaritans had their own mountain where Jacob's well was. Don't you remember the story from the Gospel of John when uh, the lady said to Jesus, well, our fathers worship here on this mountain. And they had to make it known to her. Jesus had to tell her, God is a spirit. They did worship him, going to worship in spirit and truth. So he had two different religious traditions, two different beliefs, and the hostility between the two was so great that Jewish people disdained Samaritans, would not interact with Samaritans, and certainly wouldn't let their kids marry their daughters, and vice versa. 
So this Samaritan coming along the same road, he walked over there, saw this man laying in the ditch and notice what it says. When he saw him, he had compassion. The first two didn't exhibit any kind of compassion. It's not that they weren't capable of it. The capacity to love was there, but they shut up the bowels of their compassion. Why? Through their religious beliefs, through their traditions, they're not having time. You know, anybody can love. Anybody can show compassion. But you can have things that you believe that shut up the bowels of your compassion towards someone who's laying in the ditch if you have bias and prejudice toward them. Yeah. So consider this this whole Jewish and Samaritan situation. I'm sure this lawyer is listening to this and he's probably fuming that the priest and the Levite are being portrayed as bad characters and the Samaritan is about to come off as a good guy. And the friction between these two were so great, about the only thing I can liken it to would be like, um, let's say we were in Mississippi back in the 30s. And somebody was telling a story in one of those little small towns there, but in the story, all the whites came off in a bad way, but it made the black look like he was a good person and a smart person and an industrious person. Then you'd have people saying, well, what in the world is, is, is wrong? Because the, the traditions that we have in our minds very often shut up our bowels of compassion towards certain people. So really, it depends on who's laying in the ditch. See, who's laying along the side of the road? If you're walking down along the side of the road and there you see a, a gentleman who is in his 30s, And let's say he's wearing some skinny pants. And believe me when I tell you, no grown man ought to be wearing skinny pants at all. But he's got some skinny pants on, and and he's got lipstick and blush on and a bunch of earrings. See? There are a whole lot of people whose compassion would say, do the Levite thing and go on around. Yeah, because of... What we've learned and how we've been taught. Consider if if you were walking down the road and then you looked along the side of the road and laying there was Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, I I, I presented this same scenario to another group and they they said to me, they said, well, pastor, is she half dead? Because if she's only half dead, we don't need to stop. That's what they told me. Okay. But 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 you un, you understand what, what I'm getting at. Our mindsets have everything to do with whether or not we open up the bowels of our compassion. And I give you my word if somebody over in San Francisco who's super liberal was teaching this, they'd use the same scenario. But they just say, suppose Trump was laying on the highway. See, it just has to do with our, our, our mindsets. The priest and the Levite avoided the person. The Samaritan, though he was different and distinct and had a totally different tradition, his compassion was still there. And this is why God likes people to have an enlarged heart towards people that are different from us. You don't have to believe what other people believe, but you do have to walk in love. And the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. And since love covers sins, love acknowledges those sins, but love doesn't approve of those sins. It merely recognizes that the activity is bad, but you still have to feed the hungry.
clothe the naked, and be a blessing to those that are in need of a blessing. Notice what else he did. Verse 34, he went to him, bound up his wounds, poured in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So this man obviously was traveling with whatever kind of ancient first aid kit somebody would have needed. Yeah, and, and made use of it. Why the oil? It's like a balm that soothes. Why the wine? It's like a disinfectant. It's like an antibiotic or something. So he, he's using all of that. And, and imagine the time that it took to work with this half-dead man. Because if he can't move on his own, then the Samaritan is the one doing the rolling, doing the twisting, doing the sitting of him up and looking after him. He's taking time. Care, this concern, and this compassion ministry. And you have to have time if you're going to try to reach people who are hurting. Because sometimes we tend to think if somebody's hurting and having a difficult, or passing through a difficult period, it ought to just change just like that. It doesn't. It takes time for people to heal. Somebody's been abused. Somebody's been hurt, wounded, betrayed by some friends, and God brings you along that pathway to minister to them. When you begin to minister, it takes time to pour in the oil and the wine and to bandage them up. So he got this man up on his own beast, a burden, which could have been anything from a camel to a donkey, but imagine that. So now the Samaritan has the wounded man on the animal and it's likely that the other gentleman is walking beside it. So where he had been riding comfortably, now he's got somebody else up there. And if he had one of those animals that was carrying all kinds of other goods, then of course now the animal's got that much more of a burden on him because he's carrying a human now. But he didn't think about any of that. He brought the man to some ancient hostel or something like that where a person could pay a little money for him. And he says when he got him there, he took care of him. So he got a room, got a place, went out of his way to look after this gentleman. And then verse 35, on the next day when he departed, he took out a couple of pennies and gave it to the host and said, take, take care of him and whatever you spend more when I come, I'll repay you. So he trusted this man's health to the care of the innkeeper. And he said, I will pay the debt this man is incapable of paying. Does that make sense? He's incapable of paying. So to have a compassion ministry costs you money. Yeah, costs you money. If, if you want God... To give you a ministry of mercy, then you can just expect you're going to have to spend a whole lot of your own money. If you ever had a ministry working with the homeless, I can promise you right now, there are a lot of agencies out there that will help the homeless, but it's going to cost you a lot out of your own pocket. If you decide you want to get involved with a Feed the Hungry program, there are a lot of agencies that will help, but it will never be enough money. You will always have to supply it out of your own personal resources. Any kind of compassion ministry costs you money. Yeah. Because when you see people that are hurting, it's hard to keep your own money to yourself. Yeah. 
Tiff and I see those little kids overseas that have ringworm in their scalp. It's hard to come home with a whole lot of money in our pocket. Typically don't. Very difficult. Yeah. And when, when you see those little babies that are born in the Congo and Rwanda and their parents had AIDS and you see the little ones just shaking, it's hard to not grab them little ones and just hold on to them and just start praying. Very difficult. And then when you do that, then quite naturally you're reaching right into your pocket and you're trying to bless those ministries or those parents who are having to deal with that. When you see little kids overseas that have polio, hardly ever hear of a polio case in America now because of uh, the way medicine operates here. But, but overseas, you still find a whole lot of polio. And when you see those kids, heartbreaking, you know. So this, this man had a compassion ministry, went out of his way to take this person to a place where he could be adequately cared for, and he gave the money needed for his care and said, if it costs you more, I'll repay you when I get back. That's a good man. That's a very good man. So if, if we have a Samaritan's heart, then you can expect you're going to need a Samaritan's purse. But the only reason for God keeping money in a Samaritan's purse is because there's a Samaritan's heart. Why should God bless selfish people with a lot of money? See, what's the point of that? But if we realize what we have isn't just for us, you say, well, hold on. Don't you understand that the difficulties that, that I face and, and the bills that I have and the responsibilities that I have? Sure. But there's always somebody worse off than you. Always. And when God brings you across that person's path, Jesus is expecting you to at least show some compassion. Even if at that moment you don't have anything in your purse, you do have the love of God in your heart that's shed abroad by the Holy Ghost. That's what Romans 5 says. We can, we can do that, you know. So verse 36, then Jesus asked the question to the lawyer, okay, you've heard the story then. Which of them do you think was neighbor unto the one that fell amongst the thieves? And the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just said the one that showed mercy. And then I love Jesus' reply, go and do likewise. Go and be just like that man you don't like, who's of that class of people you don't like. Now, he obviously heard the story, and he didn't have a hearing problem. So you know some people, they listen. They pay attention to what you're saying. But Jesus knew the issue wasn't hearing, and the issue wasn't reading. Because the man knew the scripture, he quoted the scripture, and he just heard the story. Jesus knew the problem was application, and that's typically what every Christian's problem is. They know the Bible, but won't do it. And even sinners are that way. How many times have you met somebody that will quote a Bible scripture to you and tell you what a Christian is supposed to be, even though they don't live it? Yeah, they, they, they can tell you all kinds of verses of the Bible. Doesn't that Bible say this or that? I told you about my brother, how he used to be. I'd come in the room and, and if he had some, uh, some strong drink or something like that, and, and I wouldn't even say anything. My presence just irritated him. You know, so I'd be there and he'd say something like, 
You know what? Well, you know you 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 all irritated and agitated uh, about my liquor. Doesn't doesn't the Bible say something about drink a little wine if you're not feeling well? I said, well, the verse says, drink a little wine for your often infirmities. My brother Rick said, I'm sick all the time. That's what he told me. So some people know enough Bible to be dangerous. That's it. No application, but they have a few words here. Now, he's born again now, so thank the Lord he doesn't think like that anymore. But the whole point is, go and do likewise. I've given you the scenario. I placed it in front of you. Don't ask me again, what do you need to do to inherit eternal life? I just told you. Go and be like the one you don't like. Well, then. If Jesus tells this story, then we can see now how it is that we as Christians needed him. See what happened with Adam and Eve? They transgressed. They were put out of the garden. The Bible says the adversary, the thief, he comes to steal and destroy. What has he done? He's robbed us all of all kinds of beautiful things that the king has brought into our lives. So over and over again, every single day, you have people falling amongst thieves. The devil is robbing people of the very image of God, robbing people of the blessing of God, of the knowledge of God. And you have one religious person after another who walks by and sees all these people dead in their trespasses and sins, and they have no answer for them. They don't even care. But then comes along somebody who's a little different, Son of God, who became the son of man, so the sons of men could become the sons of God. He left heaven, as the Bible says, see, so that he could come down here and we could become rich through the impoverishment that he enjoyed when he came down here by taking on this this flesh, fleshly body that we have. But thankfully for us, he showed compassion on us. Yeah. And he reached into his own resources and provided what we needed, and he provided all that we needed. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. That's exactly what Jesus did. And he set us up in a position where now people can look at your life and people can look at my life. And Jesus is the example of what it is to transform someone. Yeah. Remember what you were like when you were wounded? You were hurt and the devil had taken advantage of you? Well, let me quickly say a few more things about this other verse here in verse 38. See, he talks about going into a village where there's a lady named Martha. I love it. And Martha said, oh, come on into my home. Jesus is so wonderful to have you here. She had a sister whose name was Mary. Now, this is the same sister group that had a brother named Lazarus who died and Jesus raised him from the dead. And of course, Mary was sitting there at Jesus' feet and heard his word, but Martha was coming about with much serving. Well, you can see in verse 38 in the last sentence, it's Martha's house. So, so Martha felt obligated to, to be running around doing this and doing that. But, but Mary, she, she didn't feel any obligation to help her sister. She thought it was more important to sit down and listen to the king. And so she did. And Martha, being troubled or cumbered and burdened with all of this, she said to the Lord in the presence of her sister, <laughs> don't you love it? 
Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. See what are sitting right there. Tell her to help me. You just love that, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That's Martha's way of saying to Mary, get up off your duff and help me. Why are you watching me when I'm slaving away here and you're sitting down there enjoying the master's presence? We all want to enjoy the master's presence. I want to enjoy the master's presence. But verse 41, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good part, which not which won't be taken away from. her. So Jesus never condemned any of their behavior. He didn't. Martha felt obligated to do what she was doing. Mary felt obligated to do what she was doing. But to emphasize what Mary is doing, all of us should want to spend time in the presence of the king and at his feet. And it is your responsibility to make sure that you spend time with Jesus. And not just work for Jesus. Because there are plenty of people who work for Jesus. He said, Pastor, what do you mean by work for Jesus? There are plenty of people who clean the church, who cut the grass at church. They do all of that for Jesus, but they never take the time to spend time in the presence of Jesus. There are plenty of people that serve on boards and committees and all kinds of things like that. And they're working for Jesus. They're in charge of the usher board. They lead the choir. They do this. They do that. They're in charge of, of the music. They labor for the Lord and they're busy for the Lord. But when a person doesn't have time in the presence of the Lord, what typically happens is eventually you grow bitter because you start thinking about everything you're doing. Well, nobody else is doing everything I'm doing. Nobody else has to be in church as often as we do. How come we can't just sit around and do something else? See, see and, and when we're when we're working for Jesus, that's usually the attitude that develops and it easily develops and it develops quickly. We're doing this. Nobody else sees us. Nobody else is paying attention. And she couldn't get Mary to listen to her. So what does she do? She tried to move God. How does she try to move God? She complained to God. She said to Jesus, now, how many times have you complained to God? Well, God, all these wicked people there are in the world. I can't believe you let me go through these pains in my body. See, and father of all the people that there are on the planet, I just don't understand why, why I have to deal with this. See, why do I have this boss? And, and, and why, you know, you know, just like somebody who's a teacher or something like that. Father of all the classrooms on planet Earth. Why did I end up with this one? This child here. See, remember, folks, what, what we're doing, the scripture says, whatsoever you do in the name of the Lord, do to magnify him. So we we don't just work for him. We have to do what Mary does. And that's just sit down and enjoy ourselves sometimes. You know, I, I think if, if you can get away to Bible study, get away to church service, that really ought to be one place where you can sit down and just have no stress at all. Just be fed the word of God and enjoy yourself. Yeah, just no stress and pressure at all. Just allow the mind to begin to meditate on the things of God because there's so much in this world that burdens us down. And that's why the scripture says here, one thing is needful. Mary has chosen that good part. So throughout the week, you should frequently 
pick up the book. See? And read it and meditate on the scriptures. It is possible even for a pastor who gives his or her life to ministry to just read the Bible when it's time to look for a sermon. See? But a minister has to read the Bible just like you read it in order to graze in the pastures and be fed. And I found that wherever I'm grazing, if I'm enjoying it and it's making me healthy, it's probably going to make the sheep healthy also. But you find somebody who only does this as a job and they're just looking for a sermon. I'm telling you, they'll be pulling off outlines off the computer and they'll be pulling off outlines from some other book because they won't get to know God themselves to figure out what the king is saying to them. But once you are in the presence of Jesus and he's talking to you, you don't want to leave. Yeah. If I was married, I wouldn't have cared anything about what Martha was talking about. Yeah, I've been enjoying myself and having having the time of my life. But but, you know, I, I certainly understand Martha and I sympathize with Martha and all you gentlemen in here. You know how difficult it is. You have a whole lot of family and friends that come by the house and and then the men have to play host and the men are walking around with trays and they're serving people, making sure folks have water and make sure they have tea. What are the ladies doing? Oh, they're sitting over there, you know, got their legs crossed, and everybody's just laughing, joking, having a good time. You know, yeah. Okay. <laughs> if, if Tiffany was here, she would not have said amen. <laughs> I guarantee you that. Okay, but, but, but last, <clears throat> lastly, uh, notice, notice here, verse 40, 41, uh, Martha, Martha, you're careful and troubled about many things. You just got a lot of stuff on your mind right now. You know. Busy-minded people have a hard time settling down because there's nothing in this story that says she needed to be up doing everything she was doing. But you find people who have a lot of stuff on their minds, and it's hard to get them to settle down. You ever seen people like that? They just can't sit down. They have to be moving, have to be doing something to just sit down and actually enjoy a 30-minute period is distressful to some people because they feel like I'm wasting my time if I'm not out doing something. But I honestly believe that sometimes you have to set aside things and put the king first. Yeah. It's planting season. There'll be a lot of hours spent out on a tractor. There's no doubt about it. But somewhere in the middle of all of that, Got to make sure you have time for the king. Yeah, there'll be a lot of people going to be working to make sure all the irrigation and everything is working the way it's supposed to. But somewhere in the middle of all of that, got to find time for the king. And whatever your schedule looks like, if you don't find time to have a merry heart in this unmerry world, then you're going to end up being like Martha and you're going to be complaining to God. And there's absolutely no reason to do that if you'll just learn to enjoy his presence. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. Amen? Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for placing in your word two beautiful stories. 
if we've learned anything about that good Samaritan, we know that we need an enlarged heart. So I'm praying, God, that you would prosper every one of our families as their soul prospers. So that means, God, that I pray that each Samaritan's purse would grow directly in accordance with the proportion of love in that Samaritan's heart. Give them more as they give more, God. And then, Father, I pray that each one of us could be like Mary and sit at your feet and make time for you early in the morning or sometime during the day or late at night. We can just take a few moments to meditate on your word. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.